have no hands but yours to tend my sheep. No handkerchief but yours to dry the eyes of those who weep. I have no arms but yours with which to hold the ones grown weary from the struggle and weak from growing old. I have no voice but yours with which to sing, to let my children know that I am love, and love is everything. I have no way to feed the hungry souls, no clothes to Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service. Above all, I'll seek out light, love, and helping hands being shared between our many neighbors on this planet, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. I have no way to open people's eyes Except that you will show them how to trust the inner Our guest today is Jill Sternberg. Jill is the September-October Gamaliel Chair in Peace and Justice in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Her duties for the month include speaking to a wide range of audiences on her experience as a peacemaker and on her work in East Timor, where she has worked to develop nonviolence and reconciliation programs in the aftermath of the destruction wrought as that country gained its independence from Indonesia. The interview with Jill was recorded on September 27th. Jill was the University of Milwaukee's first Peace Studies graduate, has worked with Peace Brigades, and currently works in New York doing counter-military recruitment and other peace work with the Westchester Martin Luther King Institute for Nonviolence. Welcome, Jill, to Spirit in Action. How are you doing today? Oh, thank you so much. I'm fine. You've had a lot of speaking engagements around Milwaukee lately. Where were you last night? Last night I spoke at Carroll College in Waukesha. What was the topic of your talk there last night? My uh, personal biography as a peacemaker. Last night I also talked about some mediation work that I was doing in East Timor when I lived there. How long did you live in East Timor amongst your visits? I actually lived there for three years, from August of 2001 until last year, the, at the end of April, I came back to the U.S. Been back twice since, and had visited twice before that. You evidently think of yourself as a peacemaker. What led you to that? How long have you been thinking of yourself as a peacemaker? 
think of myself mostly as an activist, actually, and an educator. But my activism and education work focuses on peacemaking and particularly nonviolent social change work. And I've been doing that my whole adult life. Were you doing it as a child, too? Were you a child peacemaker? No. <laughs> I was one of those impossible kids who was always in trouble and uh, the kind of kid that you wouldn't want your son or daughter to hang around with. <laughs> Well, that wasn't my impression of you when I first met you in Milwaukee a couple decades ago. Uh, what was the what led you to this transition? How did you go from being a troubled child to a peacemaker? Um, I think one a big influence in my life was meeting people who were engaged in peace work and doing organizing and activism around peace and justice issues, and uh, encouragement and support that they gave me. Did you have that influence when you were young, too? Were your parents peace activists or justice activists? Not at all. I grew up around the U.S. military. Both of my parents were school teachers, and they were school teachers in the Department of Defense school system for the children of U.S. military stationed abroad. So I very much was in the opposite environment. Although when I talk about my journey, I talk very much about how the values that I have, I really do believe they came from in my family. And also a rejection of what I saw growing up around the military. Where were you located at the times? Was it American basis, foreign basis? We lived in Germany, and I, for example, in high school, I went to a U.S. military high school on an Air Force base. But we lived in German communities. We didn't live on the bases uh, except for the first three years we were there. So some of the time I was there, I went to German schools and was really integrated into the German society. But finally, in the end, it was a U.S. military school that I graduated from. Would you describe yourself as having been pro-military coming through your early teen years? Never. <laughs> Absolutely not. One of my earlier experiences, I think, that really made me question the military was I, as a 10-year-old kid, was very engaged in the church on the base and looked up to the pastor and, and all those things that kids do when they're engaged in a church community. And one day I went into the church to just say hi to the pastor and... He was in the middle of a service blessing troops as they were going off to fight in the Vietnam War. And I knew nothing about the Vietnam War, but I turned around and walked out and didn't, I mean, basically considered myself an atheist for about 10 years after that because I, uh, I couldn't believe that the Christianity that I had been taught as a child was consistent with supporting war. What kind of Christianity? I was raised a Presbyterian. I was baptized in the Presbyterian church that my parents were married in. I went to their catechism classes, and I sang in the church choir, and I think I was quite engaged in the church community up until that point. What kind of things were you taught that seemed at such contrast with this minister blessing these souls? You know, I, I don't think that I can remember anything specific, what was actually going through my head at that point. But just uh, God is a God of love and peace and you shall not kill and, and the kind of things that you hear a lot as a child as the kind of foundations of the church, the Christian. I hate to get too personal. If, if you don't want to answer this, please don't. How did this play out in your relationship with your father then? I don't think my father was that into organized religion. I can remember as a kid... My mom was the main motivator in getting us to church and everything. I don't think that had much of an impact on my relationship with either of my parents, actually. I think I'm the youngest of five kids, and I think at that point 
there was a lot going on in my family. And when we left the U.S. to go live in Germany, they still went to church, but um, it wasn't, I think, as regular an activity, and it wasn't. And I think it's because it wasn't that community where my mother had grown up, you know, in the church, and my parents had been married in a specific church and, and all of that. And it wasn't a Presbyterian church either. They just had, like, a, a general Protestant church on the military base. So was it as of that point you walked out and you were no longer considered yourself a churchgoer or a Presbyterian? I think mostly I just didn't believe what was going on in the church anymore. And for example, when I was 13, we were back in the U.S. for a year because my, mom, my father was getting his master's degree. You know, we were back at that same community church uh, and, and in the same community that we had lived in before we went away. And I went to catechism classes that year in the church, but I was the cont at that point who questioned everything. And basically, I was—I think I was trying to get the pastor at the church to convince me, but he didn't. It was interesting. I talked to him maybe about 10 years later, and he told me, which I wasn't aware of at the time, that it was his first experience teaching catechism classes, and he said it was very good for him because it really made him do his homework, but he didn't convince me, so. By the time you're 12 or 13, you don't want to have much to do with the choir or the religion or anything like that. Did you get confirmed? I don't even remember. I mean, it wasn't important to me anymore. What did you get into after that? Where did your values lead you? Well, in high school, I think growing up in another culture, in another country, that had a very uh, dominant U.S. military presence, I think that had a big influence on me. Most kids in that situation, they just live on the base and, you know, the military provides shopping center and, and recreation facilities. And, and you can basically live on a U.S. military base in another country and not really even come into contact with the people and the culture of the host country. And my situation was different. Uh, when I was 10 years old, my parents put me in a German school. I was fluent in German after a year. So I, I spent two years altogether in German school. When I was 14, I was like totally immersed in German society. And then I went back to this military high school. And I felt that the people there were very closed and very narrow and very judgmental about German people and German culture, but they really didn't know the people or the culture. So I had a lot of challenges. I didn't think like a US military person thinks. I had different ideas and different, and that was very obvious. When you came back to the U.S., where did you land? I went to UWM University in Milwaukee, UW-Milwaukee. And about what year would that have been? 81. So you landed at UWM. What did you study there? Well, I wasn't sure what I wanted to study. I actually wanted to be a veterinarian, but I'm not that good in the sciences, so I got off of that track pretty quickly. I actually went to school for four years before I decided what my major would be. The faculty at UWM at that time was offering peace studies courses and developing a peace studies network. I was taking a lot of the courses, actually I probably took all of the courses that they offered at that time, and those were the courses that most in interested me. And so after about four years, I thought, you know, I'm going to see if I can do something with this. And I asked the network for support, and at that time, UWM had a program where you could develop your own major, so I developed a Peace Studies major with support from the Peace Studies Network. What kind of stuff do you study to be a Peace Studies major? What I did, I mean, I basically I had the opportunity to develop my own degree so I could shape it how I wanted to do it, and 
What I chose to do was to look at nonviolence, and when I say nonviolence, I mean the theory, the practice, the history of nonviolent movements. What is nonviolence? And I looked at that in all different fields, so it was a multidisciplinary degree. So, for example, I did an independent study in economics where Professor helped me to look at literature and the methodology of documenting some of the aspects of military spending, and specifically I looked at at that point, Seymour Melman was publishing works about the spin-offs of military spending being less than the economic spin-off of civilian sector spending and how much more damaging it is to our economy to dump a lot of money in the military and that you don't get as much economic benefit from it. So I, that was something that I researched and learned not only the facts but also the methodology of how you would go about proving something like that. I studied a lot of philosophy, and the other area that I focused on really was education and how you teach about nonviolence so that I could teach what I was learning. So your aim was to be a teacher of nonviolence? Yeah, not a teacher in the formal sense of the word. But I, you know, when people ask me what my profession is, basically I do a lot of uh, education around peacemaking and nonviolence, and I do that predominantly through popular education. That's a phrase that I don't know, popular education. Popular education is basically taken from the work of Paulo Freire, which tries to erase the distinction between the teacher and the student and to embrace the concept that as we're learning, we're teaching, so we're all teachers and students. That's kind of what I try to do in my work, is not just to go somewhere and think that I'm going to go about peace, but... Um, that we're going to learn about peace together and I'm going to learn about peace from their perspective and their situation. So you pursued a degree there in Milwaukee. Did you get involved with peace and justice activities while you were there? Yeah, I really consider myself an activist. One of the things that I did with my degree is there was a possibility to get credit for doing field work. And so I, for example, went to work at our local peace center. At that time it was called Mobile Survival. Now it's called Peace Action. And I basically joined the staff while I was still in school. And what kind of things did you organize there? Uh, <laughs> I had lots of fun there. A lot of disarmament work. Maybe that organization had four goals. And one of the goals was disarmament. One was stopping U.S. military intervention abroad. One was for environmental justice. And the other was about meeting the needs here at home. So kind of the economic justice issues here in the U.S was very active in the 80s in the U.S. solidarity movement in support of um, the people in Central America and trying to change U.S. policy towards Central America. I organized lots of educational programs, demonstrations, lobbying. Yeah, really, it was a great education, and I think it was as valuable as my university education to be actually getting hands-on experience, and I think it's really what shaped my work today. Somewhere in that process, did you start approaching spirituality again? Yeah, one of my professors, who is now a good friend and uh, at that point was an excellent mentor for me, was a Quaker. He encouraged me to explore the Quaker meeting here in Milwaukee, which I then started. I guess another interesting thing is, I think that really took me back to spirituality, is at that time I was having a lot of Holocaust dreams. And I don't think it was uncommon. I don't think I was unique in that way at all. You know, it was the height of the Cold War. There was all this talk about first strike weapons and hair trigger alerts and that kind of thing. And I was really, 
I was dreaming a lot about those things and having, I guess, nightmares. I think what happened is that I began to see that whatever arguments we make, you know, well-owned we are, in the end it comes down to the choices that we make and how we want to live our lives. I think that was, for me, the important thing was wanting a life that embraced life rather than death. How to improve not so much life for myself, but the quality of life on Earth and really engaging with people. Because I was learning about the different nonviolent struggles that have gone on in the world and how, how powerful nonviolence is and how possible it is to change things using nonviolent means. I decided that's the path I want to take and not the path of the U.S. all-powerful number one, most weapons, most killing potential in the world kind of thing. What did this mean in terms of spiritual change inside you? Was there a sense of growing community that was part of this? I'm, I'm trying to figure out how you went from what you described as an atheist to something that was dealing with these Holocaust dreams. I think some of the aspects of Quakerism that really were attractive to me was, well, one was that there wasn't this hierarchical structure in the religion. The Quaker tradition that I belong to doesn't have ministers or or pastors that believe that everyone has potential, if you believe in God, that of God or good within them, and that our role is to, to try to bring that out, to find that in people. And, and emphasize that aspect of a person and of humanity rather than the more negative aspects. And yeah, the sense of community of worship and worship in silence with people who then share what movement and strength they felt in them in relationship to their spirituality felt much more genuine to me than somebody who was going to profess to be a religious leader and then quite hypocritical about it. For me, I have to say, I don't label myself anymore as atheist or as agnostic or anything like that, and I don't think that you can prove or disprove the existence of God. I think what's really most important for me is people who approach spirituality and religion and faith with the perspective of respectfulness of other people's traditions and faith and other people's beliefs. For me, it's not so important what someone's faith or spirituality is, but how they practice it and how that translates into respect and creating peace and justice as every faith practices and preaches versus the hierarchies and grabbing for power and, and those aspects that religion is also used for.
the chains that bind us How we never will be free Looking through the mirror dimly Believing that we see And all the pain and sadness The sickness and the fear All the trials of mortaldom Now look so small and clear And I understood our talk a little bit about what you experienced in East Timor. You spent a few years there, at least. Are some of the roots of that a religious conflict? Absolutely not. <laughs> the Indonesian government did at times try to portray it as a religious conflict, but it was a conflict of occupation from the start. It had nothing at all to do with religion. The majority of the East Timorese are Catholic, and that's a result of being a colony of Portugal, a very Catholic country, for 450 years. But it's also actually a consequence of the occupation itself. The Catholic Church was one of the only institutions that could function during the Indonesian occupation. For whatever reason, they decided that they weren't going to shut the church down. And so people converted to Catholicism in large numbers during the Indonesian occupation because that was a community that they could join in a place where people could be together. So it wasn't at all a religious thing. And I don't think most conflicts are. I think even conflicts that get portrayed as religious conflicts, if you look at the root, most often it's not a religious conflict at all. What is the root, then, that you see most commonly? I see economics and struggles over power and control as most often at the root of conflict. Also, in terms of indigenous, non-indigenous conflicts, quite often it's land, control of land and resources, and people struggling to try to keep what little space exists now for indigenous people to carry on their traditional lifestyle. You're listening to an interview with Jill Sternberg, a peace and justice activist with a special concern for East Timor, where she's spent several years since their 1999 independence. Jill is the September-October speaker for Milwaukee's Gamaliel Chair in Peace and Justice. Can you flush in for me some of the history about East Timor? I know really very little about it. East Timor was, as I said, colonized by the Portuguese for 450 years. And in 1974, the Nation Revolution in Portugal 
then the military was in power, but the military began the process of decolonization. And basically, people in Portugal said, and this was in 1974, that this is no longer appropriate to have colonies around the world. So they began to decolonize. East Timorese began to, in earnest, move towards their independence. And there was a brief civil war in 1975, which was won by a political party called Fredolin, which was a revolutionary party. And just as they were trying to evolve into being an independent country and get international recognition as an independent country, Indonesia, and I think it's important to point out that Henry Kissinger and then President Gerald Ford were in Indonesia the day before the invasion. There's transcripts that document that it was discussed and that they gave the green light to the Indonesian dictator Suharto, even to the point where U.S. weapons that had been sold to Indonesia were sold under the condition that they only be used for defensive purposes. And Henry Kissinger had an interchange about how they would, you know, try to cover up or deny any use of U.S. weapons in the invasion. They invaded in December, and the Indonesians were so arrogant, they had this saying that they were going to invade in the west because they have a land border on the western side of East Timor with between East and West Timor. East Timor, uh, West Timor is part of Indonesia, was part of the Dutch East Indies. That's how it became part of Indonesia. They were going to go from the west to the east and, like, have breakfast on the western border, lunch in the second city, and dinner in the east, and the country would be theirs. And... And they never, ever succeeded in a successful occupation. The East Timorese resisted from the beginning. The terrible side of it is that about 200,000 people were killed in the 24 years of the occupation, which is about a third of the country, a third of the population. In 1998, after Suharto was forced out of office, his successor, Habibi, in January of 1999, began talking about the possibility of a referendum to settle the question of East Timor. Legally, East Timor was never recognized as part of Indonesia, except by it. So legally, it was still considered a Portuguese colony. And a negotiation occurred between Indonesia, Portugal, and the UN to have a referendum. The agreement was signed on May 5, 1999. The referendum scheduled and rescheduled a few times, but ultimately took place on August 30th. And 78.5% of the people voted for independence. After the results of the referendum were announced, Indonesian military went from the east to the west and systematically destroyed the country. They destroyed three-quarters of the houses, displaced two-thirds of the population, destroyed all infrastructure, every school, all electrical generation capacity, water and sewage systems, telecommunications, absolutely everything was destroyed. At the end of September, they agreed to a UN peacekeeping mission. The UN then took over administration of East Timor until the 20th of May 2002, when they became independent. And they're the newest country on the earth. We know war. A hundred years it haunts our homes. We know war. Generations left alone The wombs forever wanting The burdens we all bore The empty chair at supper The chaplain at the door We know war Death falling from the sky like rain We know war In the sirens wail again 
Blackouts and the blitzkrieg As we huddled on the floor Children trembling in the shelter Midst the unrelenting roar We know war We know war The rows of crosses in the field The endless longing That cannot be concealed The history shows what lays in store Oh, we know By the blood in every speech We know war In the poison that they preach The young ones seeing horrors They've never known before The scars that never heal in hearts Where hatred keeps the score We know war The armies rolling through the street We know war We are the ones who taste defeat The endless occupation And the searches door to door The fear that stalks the night Until you can't take any more We know When the battle's over Victors count the cost Cold calculation What is won and what is lost Survivor song will be And you ask of us, what for? Because we know war We know war We know you land in East Timor? Well, I first went there in 1999. I was an international observer for the referendum on independence and had planned to stay six weeks, but evacuated after four weeks when the country was being destroyed. And then went back in December of 2000 to investigate the possibility of moving there to help develop a peace center with a focus on conflict transformation, and then finally moved there in August of 2001. So there now exists a peace center there? 
Yeah, I helped to start a peace center. It's called the Peace and Democracy Foundation. The main work that we do, there's two things. Is one is training people in conflict transformation skills and approaches. After living with war for 24 years, uh, being a colony for everybody's lifetime who's now alive before that, people have limited visions about how to deal with conflict, and especially one of the legacies of war is that people are quick to violence. We were helping people to try to look at alternative approaches to dealing with conflict and problems. The other thing that we did was to develop a local model for mediation based on traditional dispute resolution practices being looked at as an alternative to the courts, like we also have mediation programs in some places that function as alternatives to going through the judicial system. It looks to me like you can say very clearly, East Timor was wronged by Indonesia, so it makes you a partisan of some sort. In terms of that conflict, are you a peace worker? Absolutely. I don't think you have to be nonpartisan to be a peace worker. I think a stance or an approach that one takes like that, whether you're doing solidarity work or nonpartisan intervention or uh, intervening on one side, I think there's lots of choices that we can make in terms of how we approach a conflict. I don't think, for me anyway, it's not really very easy to be neutral about gross human rights violations and genocide and crimes against humanity. And I think we have a responsibility, each person on this earth has a responsibility, to stand up when those things happen and do what they can to try to stop them. Did you have any experience with what went on in Nicaragua in the 1980s? Yeah, I did a lot of public speaking and education work here in the U.S. about the U.S. military and U.S. government role in Nicaragua, and I visited there once as a way to understand the better the situation on the ground. I'm kind of assuming, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that you don't see the United States government as being a very good peace influence in the world. Absolutely not. I think, you know, we could make a good analogy between what we're doing in the world right now and what the Roman Empire was doing at the height of its power in the world. And I think that the U.S. is an evil empire. Our empire is going to fall. And I think that what we really need to be doing now is to be thinking about what is it that we want to be when our empire falls. What could the U.S. do? I guess the kind of things that I think of, I think of first is what things we as individuals can do. For example, one of the big focuses of my work right now is to try to educate white people and people of European ancestry in this country about, one, the history of racism in this country, and then, two, the current realities and how racism is still very much a part of our society. And I extend that also to learning about Islam and reaching out to people who are different than us and different communities and really trying to understand them, what motivates them and who they are, their history and their values. I think that on an interpersonal level, it's really critical that we move beyond stereotypes and especially move beyond fear, fear of the things that we get in the media and in the mainstream of our society and really try to understand what reality is versus the myths that get perpetuated because they suit uh, certain segments of the society. I think we have a responsibility to engage our elected representatives and officials and give them our opinions and and other options of what we want to see happen 
and that we have a responsibility to mobilize together to try to change those things that we think are really going down the wrong way. For example, civil liberties of Arabs in this country are, you know, you could almost say they don't really have any. And the government rounds people up and harasses people. And a lot of people will say, that's okay, we need to do that because of the war on terrorism. But I would ask, where's the line? Where does violating people's rights cross into criminality? And I think the government can be they have to say no when it is. People hold the U.S. up as this great democratic free country, and yet if you look at the reality, that's not the reality that we live in with other countries. Are there some better examples you could point to? Well, I think every place has its strengths and its weaknesses. And I think, for example, I would say a system that we have Although we do have um, small third parties, uh, the way our electoral system is structured, it's nearly impossible for them to get representation in elected bodies. And I think that creates a lot of problems for us. If you look, for example, at the Voting Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act really changed things in this country that afterwards a lot of blacks, thousands of blacks, been elected to office at different levels. I mean, we only have one black senator at the moment. At other levels, so there is much more representation of blacks. Not quite what it is in terms of their overall percentage of our population, but there has been some improvement. And I think that, you know, we need to be looking at what are the options for changing our electoral system to get broader representation. I think it's not healthy for this country to have power in the hands of only Republicans and Democrats. And I think if there were more parties with some power, our politics would be much more dynamic, and there would be many more checks and balances than there are with having two parties that are quite similar in their perspective. And, you know, East Timor is a small new country, and they have 16 political parties, and I would just say I don't think that it's necessary to have 16, and I wish that some of them would unite and form a stronger opposition. But it's just, you know, to give an example that there are vibrant democracies, I mean, I think almost every other democracy that exists, I mean, in a lot of the Western European countries, you have two predominant parties, but there are smaller parties that actually do get seats in Parliament and have power and help shape government policy. Do you speak about dealing with violence from firsthand perspective? Have you had to face it in Milwaukee and New York or in East Timor? My most poignant experiences with violence are with domestic violence. I grew up in a very violent family. I did a lot of work to try to unlearn the damage that I received as a child growing up in that kind of an environment. So that's what I draw upon most, especially around working on issues of reconciliation and forgiveness, the steps that I had to go through to reconcile with my father in particular. Very important to understanding how you deal with violence in a healthy way. I mean, I think we live in one of the most violent societies in the world, if you want to look at it at a larger level. And I think most of the time I'm on the privileged side of that violence. I'm white from a middle-class background. I don't suffer a lot of violence in that sense, although, you know, I've been mugged and all that other kind of stuff. I think that, for me, the structural violence of this society, like uh, the violence that comes along with racism, is the violence that touches me most deeply. And and I see myself as having a a role in trying to change it as somebody who's of the group inflicting the violence. How can I mobilize to speak out about racism, to really develop some programs that are going to 
change the racist nature of our society rather than continue to perpetuate it. And internationally, I think the U.S. is definitely the most violent country in the world. We export more arms than any country at this point. We have more nuclear weapons than any country. Our military budget is the largest in the world. And those are all things that we need to unite together to change. I think you kind of understated that last one, that our budget for the military is larger than any other countries. Isn't it larger than almost everybody else combined? Yeah, not everybody, though. I mean, there are other countries that have quite large military budgets. And I think it's important not to look at the world as the U.S. is evil and everybody else is good. There are plenty of other countries where there are wars going on that the governments are pouring the country's resources into militarism rather than into life-giving and life-sustaining programs. I don't like to characterize it as we're bad and everybody else is good. How well are you accepted in East Timor? Is the fact that you're not Catholic or that you're still new to the language, is that a problem there? No, not at all. I think the, the biggest reason for the acceptance that I've gotten there is that I was working in solidarity with their struggle for self-determination since 1991. So I was very familiar with people from East Timor. When people would visit, we would usually meet them. We would invite them to our house, share, try to share a meal, or organize a public program for them. We knew most of the leadership. I mean, the people who are in the leadership now and who are leaders in the resistance to the occupation. So we're in a very unique position that we know common villagers and we know the prime minister of the country, so we're very well received. A lot of foreigners don't learn the language when they go there, so the fact that I took the time and am fluent in their language is very much appreciated. And it also easier to communicate and engage with people because there's no language barrier there usually. What is the language they speak there? Hetun. I mean, actually there's between 56 and 65 languages, depending on how you categorize what you want to define as a language. I speak Tetan, which is the lingua franca that most people speak some version of, or have learned some version of, but all the different tribal groups have their own indigenous languages. Are you planning going back there soon? I think currently you're located in New York City. <laughs> I'd go tomorrow if I could. <laughs> I know my heart is still there. Other than the time that we've lived there, we've been there every year, so I assume that I'll go sometime next year to visit again. It's a special place, and my heart is really there. It's an incredible education and privilege to experience the birth of a country and the development of all its institutions and all that. So it's a very special and beautiful place. When you say we, Jill, who are you referring to? My husband and I are both very engaged in East Timor. He's actually headed there tonight. He's headed to East Timor? Yeah, he's going there for two months to work with a local organization that he worked with while we lived there. Particularly, he's focused on oil and gas development. There's oil and gas in the sea between East Timor and Australia, and there's a big dispute over who's going to get the profits from the development of it. What kind of work does he do? Is he a peacemaker in the same way you are? He's a peacemaker. We have our own distinct approaches. Organization in English called Walking Together in Tetum Hamatu. And they do analysis and monitoring of the development and reconstruction work that's happening there by international actors, by the UN, by through bilateral programs and multilateral programs and international agencies. 
and as I said, he's particularly interested in the question of the oil and gas development and that East Timor has a dispute with Australia over. While you're there, what spiritual support or what community support do you get? Do you attend Catholic Church while you're there? I've attended some of the masses, but the Catholic traditions don't seem to. Um, oh, what can I say? I don't. I don't find them spiritually nurturing. When I was living there, there were a few Quakers that I met. The New Zealand government representative was a Quaker, and the, the director of Caritas was a Quaker, and we would meet together periodically for silent worship. This last time I visited, and I guess to preface it, I would say. I've really been developing meditation as a spiritual practice the last years, and this year in particular, and this summer while I was there, a small group of East Timorese and I met together regularly for silent meditation. Jill, how do you financially afford going abroad like that and being able to do your piecework? Do you get financial support from some organization or groups? In general, the answer is yes, but I don't condition my work on financial support. My personal bottom line is that I don't want to have to pay to work, but even that I don't adhere to. So a lot of the times we use our savings. I guess most people would say that we live very simply, although I don't, I find it's really a challenge to live simply in this society. But in general, yeah, I I try to uh, get some support the work that I take from agencies or foundations that are interested in that kind of work. And what kind of agencies or foundations do support this kind of work? Well, for example, I'm on the board of an organization called the A.J. Musty Memorial Institute, and we fund nonviolent training around the world. Our focus is really grassroots kind of nonviolent training, trying to sustain or help nonviolent movements develop. When I was in East Timor, Initially, we paid our own way to go there, and until I got some grants for the Peace Center, was basically funding it from our savings. And then that work was primarily funded through development agencies of different countries, uh, the German government, the Australian government, the New Zealand government, uh, all gave us some grant money. In the U.S., I think it's more productive to try to get people who have money to contribute to the various organizations. I think that's, in a sense, more sustainable than the problem with foundation funding is quite often you're stuck with this question of are you doing the work because that's the grant that would be funded or because that's what you really think would be needed. You said the best way is to approach individuals as opposed to foundations. So I'm just wondering if there's individuals who are helping underwrite your work in East Timor? Not in East Timor, no. I guess my biggest support is my mother-in-law. She's a children's book author, and she's very generous. It's good to marry into the right family. (laughs) Jill, how long have you been married? I think about two years. I don't really... um, That wasn't the the defining point in our relationship. (laughs) Where did you get married, U.S. or East Timor? Well, we tried to get married in East Timor, actually. The reason why we decided to get married is because customarily, if you're living with someone in that society, you're, you're considered married. And we felt a little bit awkward introducing ourselves as husband and wife when we weren't really in actuality married. So we tried to get married, but they didn't have any regulations for civil marriages yet. The head of the civil registry, which is 
where you would, according to their laws, would go to get married was very apologetic, but um, it wasn't possible. For example, we have some friends, a couple who the man is Catholic and the woman is, is and they also are going to have to leave the country to get married because there's no process for a civil marriage and there's no priest that will marry them and no imam that would marry them. It's a big challenge for people there who don't want to, I mean, really the only option is a religious wedding. So we got married in New York. You just went to a justice of the peace? Uh, no, we actually were married by a friend who's Indonesian, although he's lived in this country for decades. And I guess he probably considers himself Indonesian-American, who is also very involved in uh, East Timor Solidarity Work, actually the East Timor Action Network, which is the solidarity group here that works with East Timor. He's a good friend and also a UCC minister. What kind of minister? United Church of Christ. Is that your husband's background? Oh, my husband is an atheist, and he's probably one of the most principled people I've met and has a really hard time surviving in a society that tries to define everybody as religious. I'm curious why you chose to have a religious marriage in the U.S. Was that for your needs or his needs? Did this accommodate both of you? We didn't have a religious marriage. We were married by a friend who happens to be a a minister and uh, therefore is authorized to marry people. But it wasn't religious at all. Matter of fact, he promised not to mention the word God. (laughs) Well, that's good. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're probably, in the best sense of the word, an uppity female. I think that's probably one of the problems you had with these hierarchical religions. Uh, In your relationship with your husband, is this a really good partnership for you? I think I look at it as probably the best thing that's ever happened in my life. Yeah. We were friends for a long time, and... So we came to our love to each other through friendship. He's very supportive and believes in the same things and is as committed as I am to working for peace. So, yeah. You said that he's some kind of an engineer. What's his discipline? Professionally, he worked as an engineer designing software for medical equipment. So does he take up the math and science abilities that every relationship needs? Yeah, I think we share it somewhat. Um, Jill, you're sitting in chair in what's called the Gamaliel chair. What does that involve? Actually, technically, the Gamaliel chair for peace and justice. And it's a program that's more than 20 years old. It was started by the Lutheran Campus Ministry in Milwaukee. And basically, they bring speakers who are doing different kinds of work for peace and justice every year for approximately a month to Milwaukee. And basically what we do is we speak about our work for peace and justice to different community groups, institutions, uh, educational institutions, religious bodies, that kind of thing. Can you give me an example of some of the places where you've spoken and what you've spoken about? I'm talking about models of mediation and the idea of developing conflict resolution methods based on local customs and cultures. I'm talking about peacemaking my journey as a peacemaker. I'm talking about the specific roles and processes that women peacemakers are engaged in, and I'm talking about nonviolence and the use of nonviolence in conflict situations. For example, when we get done with this interview, I'm going to be going to talk to some students at the Lutheran Campus Ministry that actually started this program many, many years ago, 
Last night I was at Carroll College. I've been speaking at churches on Sunday mornings. And when I came, I, the first thing I did, I gave a talk at Marquette University at a national conference on peace and justice about peacemaking as a vocation. What kind of response are you getting from people? Who's showing up for these things, and are people excited? It varies. The conference at Marquette was a national conference. Well, actually, it was international, and there were people from various people in academia, and I got a very positive response there. On Sunday morning, I spoke at a church on the south side of Milwaukee, and the reaction was mixed. There were some people who appreciated my remarks and some people who didn't appreciate them as much. It varies. I spoke at a Catholic elementary and middle school yesterday morning, and I got a mostly positive reaction from the students, although there was always that one or two who don't want to show that they want to engage in anything in <laughs> Are young people in general and on the college campuses, are young people interested in your message? Well, I've just started my work here in the chair. I guess if I extrapolate also to my work in New York where I'm doing especially a lot of uh, counter-military recruitment work, I think that there is a, a lot of energy and interest on college campuses these days and a lot of concern among college students about the current situation in this country and the impact that we have on the rest of the world. How long does the Gamaliel Chair go? When are you done? When did you start? My first talk was on Friday, so that's um, the 23rd of September, and I'll be here until the 17th of October. Jill, when you finish your month or so in Milwaukee, where do you go from there? I'll be headed up to Ashland to give a talk and facilitate a workshop at, at Northland College. And how long will you be there? just three or four days while I'm doing that and then I'm back to New York where I live and work with the Westchester Martin Luther King Institute for Nonviolence. And what kind of work do you do with them? I think counter-recruiting is one of the items. Yeah, we're really trying to get alternative information into the school to help kids understand the realities of military service, the things that often get left out by recruiters, and also to help them see that there are other options and to access those options. And we do nonviolence training. Basically, I'm trying to start a peace center now in the community where I live to help strengthen the vibrant voices for peace and justice and make our organizing more effective. Jill, I want to thank you for taking the time to spend with me. I know you've got a heavy speaking schedule. It must be quite a drain on your voice to be having to speak in public these many times. Are you an extrovert by nature? I am, fortunately. Although, um, the, the challenge less comfortable with speak, giving a speech in that sense. As I said, I, I'm much more into popular education and methodologies that engage people in dialogue and learning together and exploring issues together rather than having one person talking to or at other people. Well, I wish you well in all of your presentations down there. I hope you can visit Eau Claire. We can use your kind of good and scintillating energy. And thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks. I hope I'll be able to stop by and meet your family. Let it begin with me, we 
Today's guest has been Jill Sternberg, the recent speaker for the Gamaliel Chair in Peace and Justice, a program of Lutheran Campus Ministry in Milwaukee. You can find information and website links concerning Jill's peace studies and work in Milwaukee and in New York with Peace Brigades and with the A.J. Musty Memorial Institute for Nonviolence and on East Timor at our website, www.northernspiritradio.com. Dot org. This interview was recorded on September 27, 2005. Today's program has included music by Carol Johnson called Simply Love and We Know War by John McCutcheon and Peace Will Come by Tom Paxton. The theme music for Spirit in Action is I Have No Hands But Yours by Carol Johnson. Thank you for listening. I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. You can email me at helpsmeet at usa.net. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. I have no higher cause for you than this To love and serve your neighbor Enjoy and selflessness Love and serve your neighbor in joy and selflessness.